Our scripture reading today is from Philippians 3 and 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Brenda. Good morning. Uh, My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, For a number of weeks now, we have been in the middle of a series, and we're going to bring it to a close this week, uh, on the Christian doctrine of our union with Christ. And what we've been saying is that to be a Christian means not that Jesus comes into your life, but that you come into his. I mean, in other words, not only that Jesus comes into your life, but that you also go into his. So when the Apostle Paul talks about believing into Jesus, in the Greek language, he talks about believing into Jesus. Uh, Faith is believing into him. We've said you change locations. You move out of yourself and out of your life, and you move into his life. That's the way way it works. You You literally move. Uh, and, and the way I've been trying to illustrate this in a number of different ways every week, and, and maybe even for the kids this morning, this might help. Um, and I've told this story 
before, but it's kind of humorous and it's the best one that I know that illustrates it well. When I was a kid, I grew up on Lake Eloise, on the south side of Lake Eloise, and we would ski Little Lake Eloise. And one particular day, my friends and I were skiing, and back then we kneeboarded. I don't know, people don't do that much anymore, but that was about the, the coolest, hippest thing you could do uh, then. And one day I was behind the boat kneeboarding, and uh, as the boat kind of passed, in front of me as I was kneeboarding, this strange bump came up uh, right in front of me, which I very quickly figured out was an alligator, and I literally rode right up the back of the alligator and caught air. Now, I would like to tell you that the story ended well, and I landed it, and it was awesome. I fell, but I didn't let go of the ski rope. And I about drowned, but there was no way I was letting go of the ski rope. I would have held on until I drowned. Wherever that boat was going, I was going with it as far away from that as I possibly could. Because you see, okay, and so I want to use that as an illustration. I, I was tied to that boat by virtue of that rope, okay? In the same way, when we talk about union with Christ, we mean that literally we are... Faith by faith, we've tied ourselves off to Jesus. So what happens is, is I get pulled uh, into everything He's doing. So last week, Jonathan talked about I get pulled into His mission. His mission becomes my mission. Okay, where He is, I am. That's what John, you know, in John, Jesus says, "My disciples will be where I am." So wherever He goes, I get pulled right along with Him into whatever He's doing. And this morning I have the unfortunate task of of making sure that we realize that part of that means I get pulled into his mission means I also get pulled into his sufferings. So union with Christ at the end of the day, and this is why we save this one for the last, because ultimately it means suffering with Christ. It means union with his sufferings. And that's right here. It's right in this passage in Philippians 3. And you can see it there. We've been reading it for six weeks. To become a Christian, Paul says, you can see it. Look, look right there, is to gain, to gain Christ is to come to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection in your life, and to begin to suffer. Now, let me tell you, when this began to make sense to me, when I kind of began to make heads and tails of this, uh, two, two precipitating events in my own life when I had to try to really begin to make sense of this idea of suffering. The first was, is I met a man at seminary who was teaching a missions seminar named John Piper and began to read his books. And he has helped me more than anybody else in what it means for Christians to suffer. And so if this is a point of struggle for you, I would say go find things that John Piper's written and start to read them. Because he's a man who's really dealt with this and is really calling the church to embrace the reality of the suffering that she's called to. But then secondly, I began to take trips overseas, particularly to places like India. And there are two stories in particular that I could tell you really quickly. The first, uh, on my first trip to India... We went to this place that I would really affectionately refer to as the armpit of the world. Uh, It was just arid and nasty. And this pastor and his wife who were there, we were in their home for a number of days. And I remember being struck by her because she had the most beautiful teeth. I mean, typically third world people's teeth aren't that great. Hers were gorgeous. And so, you know, I started, you know, I, I was kind of complimenting her. And this is kind of open foot, open mouth, insert foot. So I was kind of complimenting her or saying something about it. And I realized the reason she had such beautiful teeth is because she had been beaten so many times she had lost all her teeth. And those weren't her real teeth. Uh, and we began to talk. And I'm kind of 24, 25 years old at the time and, and thinking, you know, about these things. And w- what I found out was they lived in this beautiful part of the country that was gorgeous and 
and mountainous and what we would call paradise. And they had moved to this god-awful place where they were persecuted and all, I mean, just terrible conditions. And, you know, we began to talk, and one night they said, you know, people ask us all the time, why would you leave Kerala to come to Tamil Nadu? Why would you leave home to come here? And I'll never forget her response. We were sitting in the circle in the living room, and she said, you know, Kerala, where we're from, is a great place to live. But this is a great place to die. And I just thought, lady, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, and this happened to me over and over again. There's another story. We were driving along one day with a pastor in Tamil Nadu in southern India. And one of the things they were dealing with there is the government had passed an anti-conversion law where, you, where you, it really prohibited you from preaching the gospel in public. And so I was just talking to this young guy about my age. He was a pastor about, what are you going to do? He says, we're going to preach the gospel. Won't they throw you in jail? Well, probably. Okay. Well, then what will you do? Well, we'll preach the gospel in jail. And I began to very quickly realize that these people over on the other side of the world had figured out something that very few people that I had ever been in church with had really figured out. That the Christianity that a lot of people are living in other places had really embraced the idea of what I think Paul's calling us to. And that is a sense of to belong to Jesus and to have union with him necessarily along with that comes the reality of you having union with the sufferings. It's just a way of life. You just expect it. Now, one of the things I've got to do this morning, though, for you is, is I say that, and then we begin to immediately think, okay, great. He's, we're gonna, what, what do you mean? I've got to, like, sell my house and move to the other part of the world. I mean, how do, you, how do you begin to work these things out? And so one of the things that I have to do is I have to work really hard this morning to help demystify this, this reality of suffering. And I remember I told you John Piper helped. So a friend of mine uh, met him at a conference one time. His name's Dax. He's an associate pastor at a church over in Lakeland. And he, he met John uh, Piper one day, and he went up to me and he said, I'm just really struggling with this whole suffering thing that you're talking about. I mean, what does it mean? How, I'm, I'm white, middle-class, you know, American person. How do I, you know, start to make sense of these things? And what, what Piper said to him, I think, is brilliant. He said, look, um, he, here's how he put it. He said, give yourself to the work of love, and suffering will find you. Just go home, and really make it your goal to love your wife and kids. Make it your goal to love the people in your life, to love the people in your city, and suffering is going to find you. Because at the center of love is death. And I think that is so helpful. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this call to suffering, but we're, going to try to de- we're just going to try to put it in the context of what it means for us to live in loving engagement with one another and families and on mission in our city and all of these ways that the work of love and the mission of love really comes with the reality of a call to suffer. So let me just, one illustration, I know I go back to it all the time, but it's the way I pray for the moms in my life because the reality, if you just think about motherhood, or parenting in general, there are two things that the Scripture promises to every single mom in the room. And the first is that it's going to be hard. Right? That suffering is the job description. But what the Scripture also says is that as you just even think about the work of motherhood and, and the reality, and what's funny is I read an article recently where it was talking about stay-at-home moms are more depressed than, people who, than, moms, than moms who go to work every day. And the reason is, is because you can't get away from the kids, ever. They're always there, and they always need something. And it's the, so what, it's the demand of having this, these appendages that, that go with you wherever you go that always need something from you, and it's the constant demand of that, that that causes depression and loneliness and suicidal thoughts, I guess, at times, right? 
just, what am I going to do? Because the reality of mothering is, it's hard. It's hard. But what the scripture also says is that the promise of, the promise of it being hard, it comes with the reality that it's the very means by which God is going to use to sanctify you. So what the scripture says is, is mothering is difficult, but it's the means of, of salvation for the mother. So the way I pray for the moms in my life, for my wife and for my sister and for, you know, other people in my life is I I pray, God, give them great joy in the suffering you've called them to in motherhood because it's the very means that you're going to do the greatest work in their life. But it's not just motherhood. It's just loving people and the demands of love, which lead to suffering. So we want to look at this this morning in four headings, okay? And there are the four things on the back of your um, scripture passage there. We want to look at the necessity the dynamics, the obstacles, and the power for suffering, okay? The necessity of suffering, the dynamics of it, the obstacles to it, and the power for it under those four headings. Uh, just very briefly walking through this together, okay? First, uh, having, having set a frame for what we're going to talk about. First, the necessity of suffering. So I want to I answer this question. Can you be a Christian and avoid a life of suffering? Let me be your friend. And tell you that the Bible's answer is a clear and emphatic no. They're conflicting trajectories. Now let me try to prove this to you from the scriptures, okay? Let's begin with our assurance of pardon in Romans chapter 8. You can look back at it if you want to. It's there in your worship folder. I included it because it so clearly proves my point. Okay, in the verses that I pulled from Romans 8, Paul's talking about our being adopted into God's family. So Christian is somebody who's, who's been adopted into the family of God, and the Holy Spirit lives in him, and he enjoys intimacy uh, with the God of the universe. He's an heir, Paul says. But then comes this strange qualifying statement in verse 17, which, which Jonathan um, you know, put before you. Provided, Paul says, so adopted into his family, Holy Spirit in us, enjoying intimacy, becoming an heir. And then Paul says in verse 17, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So Paul says we are sons and daughters Destined for glory, but there's a condition, provided we suffer with him. And that's just one place we could go to a bunch of different places uh, where the biblical evidence points to the reality that in order uh, to be a Christian and to live as a son and daughter of God, you cannot avoid a life of suffering. Why? Why is suffering normative? Why is it necessary? See, that's the question we have to answer this morning. And the answer is just this. It's the doctrine of our union with Christ. That's what we've been talking about for, what, six weeks now. And so come, come here in this passage to Philippians chapter 3 up there at the top of your page. And what I want you to see there, we've not spent a lot of time on these verses, but this morning I want to a little bit more. Paul says, God saved me. Okay? And this is the language he uses. He says, I, I gained Christ and was found in him. And that's the language of union with Christ there. Okay, in verses 8 and 9. I gained Christ and was found in him. And then he begins to work through the practical implications of this. He says that the result is that he then had this new desire in his life to know Christ and the resurrection power of Christ. And that word know means to become, to become intimate with experientially. And so the practical implication then of our being united with Christ is, is we, we come to know him intimately and his resurrection power begins to course through our life. But... The question then becomes, in what direction? And Paul answers the question. He says, the resurrection power comes, it begins to bubble up in our life, but it's toward sharing in Christ's sufferings. Do you see that? 
So practically being united with Christ means you begin to share in his sufferings, Paul says, becoming like him in his death. And that Greek word translated there is one, if you've been around the church for a long time, you know it's this word koinonia. It's a very important word for Christians. When you're in koinonia with someone, then it really, what's mine is yours. And what have we been saying about union with Christ? What have we defined it? What goes for him? You can say it, it's okay, you can talk in church. What goes for him goes for me. What's his is mine. What's mine is his. But see, what's his is mine. And this is the idea of quantania. And so in Acts chapter 2, when the early church was first getting, getting started, what, what they realized very quickly was is they, they could not live independently of one another, so they began to take all their money and their resources because there were many people who were poor among them, and they said, you know what, if, if, if Jesus has treated me in such a way that what's his is mine, then I can't treat you as if what's mine is mine. If the way God has treated me in Christ is everything that's his becomes mine, then the way that gets fleshed out in my life, and they begin to understand, then what's mine is yours. We have quantania. Everything that, that is mine is yours. That's what it means to have quantania. And this is exactly what we've been saying for weeks now, right? We share in Jesus' righteousness. We share in his death. Literally, we die with him. We share in his resurrection, right? We, we experience a resurrection to newness of life. We share in his ascension. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places right now. But all that means we share in his mission. And ultimately, we share in his sufferings. See, it's all one big package. It's all or nothing. And so union with Christ then is something we experience. It's not just legal and forensic. It's subjective and personal. So a Christian is not someone who only believes in Jesus' death and resurrection as a historical fact. A Christian is someone who begins to experience it and enter into it. And this is what Paul means when he says there in Philippians 3.10 that the end product of our union with Christ is that we become like him in his death. You see that? Verse 10, look there. I mean, I want you to look because it's important that we become like him in his death. In other words, Paul says, my life takes on the same narrative structure as his life. My experience begins to mirror his experience. It's the same thing in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are being transformed, Paul says, into the image of Jesus. And the Greek word in both those places, both in verse 10 of Philippians 3 and verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3, is this Greek word morph. So you know what that is, right? Morph. It literally is morph. And in Greek mythology, Morpheus was the god of dreams. And he was a god who could change his voice or his appearance to match the appearance of another person. So the word morph refers to the reconfiguration of the parts of an object that result in it having a different appearance or shape than it did before. Okay? It looks different. It feels different. The result of our lives then being united with Christ is that our lives are dramatically changed. Our lives begin to morph, Paul says, and take the shape of Jesus' life. We become like him in his death. Okay? So union with Christ means you change locations. You move from your life, which is nice and insulated and you got everything figured out, and what faith does is it brings you into Jesus' life and you literally change locations. And just like any, any address change, right? If you move from California to Florida, what's that like? I mean, everything gets rearranged. 
It's a total rearrangement of your entire life to make a move across country like that. And in the same way, when you come into Christ, your whole life gets rearranged. Your life begins to take this new shape after the pattern of Jesus' life, which means ultimately that your life begins to take the shape of the cross. And that is what I mean by the dynamics. See, let's move to the dynamics of suffering now. How does it work? What's it look like on a day-to-day basis? And the way I want to answer that is, is your life begins to take the shape of the cross. And the cross is the image that defines all of Jesus' life and mission. His life literally ended with him hanging on a cross, but his whole life was defined by it. It's this metaphor, this image for humility and self-sacrifice, a life of love. It's the image for a life of love. And so to become like Jesus in his death means that by virtue of our union with him, our lives begin to morph and take the shape of the cross. That's literally what Paul's teaching. And so we see in Luke, 23, Luke 9, 23, if anyone come after me, what are we told? Let him deny himself and do what? But before, take up his cross and follow me. What's Jesus? See, Jesus is calling us to the same thing. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany during World War II, has famously written and said, the cross is laid on every Christian. It is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And here's his famous phrase. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die. He goes on, suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. If we refuse to take up our cross and submit to suffering and rejection at the hands of men, we forfeit our fellowship with Christ and have ceased to follow him. Now, Bonhoeffer talked this way because he was a German Lutheran. And Martin Luther had counted suffering among the marks of the church. So Luther, who started all this, right? We're Protestant. He kind of started this whole movement, right? You get that? There's a connection. Luther said if the church wasn't suffering, it wasn't the true church. And they weren't just words for Bonhoeffer. I mean, in 1939, he was drafted into the Nazi army in Germany, but instead of joining the army, he got special dispensation to put it off for a year and to travel to New York City because he had friends there to work in the churches there. He was a pastor. But within days of arriving in New York City, he made up his mind to go back to Germany against the advice of all of his friends, both American and German. And he was confronted with this choice. Uh, And it was very simple. It was, on the one hand, he could live in New York City, right over here. He could live in New York City in safety and comfort, away from everything that was happening back home. Safety, comfort, and peace. Or he could risk his life by going back to Germany. And he he chose to go back to join the conspiracy against Hitler, which eventually cost him his life. He was executed in 1945 after more than a year in a concentration camp. See, and that's that picture. Do you see the picture there? And that's exactly what I mean when I say that our lives are to take the shape of the cross, this intentional movement towards death. So look at the way Paul puts it. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10, he says of himself and of all of us, we're always carrying around in the body, the death of, our, of, of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And then verse 11, he repeats the same idea. 
For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And just in case we've not gotten it after two tries, the third one in verse 12. So, let me restate this again. Let me, you know, kind of summarize it all. Death is at work in us, but life in you. And this is what the cross-shaped life looks like on a day-to-day basis. My death for you. Paul says, I had to die so that you can have life. And this is how, this is the cross-shaped pattern of life. I go without so you can have. I lose so that you can win, right? I disappear so that you can be center stage. I get sad so you can be happy. I don't get what I want so that you can have what you want. I take the weight of your burdens upon myself, whatever it might be, and are weighed down by them so that you can be free of it. This is what, my death for your life, my sacrifice for your freedom, Paul says. But notice, notice, don't miss in verses 10 and 11 the qualifying adverb. He says, look there again. Always carrying around in the body the death of our Lord Jesus. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over. Right? So Jesus says in in Luke 9, 24, take up your cross how often? Once at the beginning. Take up your cross every day and follow after me. Paul says, I die every day is what he says in 1 Corinthians 15.31. And so this is, this is a lifestyle. This idea of dying for the sake of others and, their, and, and you know, going without so that others, others can have is being pushed out into the, not the big stuff, but the everyday little events of life where love begins to work. It's being pushed out so that my whole life becomes the constant rehearsal of Jesus' dying love for me. Not the big stuff. But the little stuff, the nitty-gritty of marriage and parenting and friendship and all of these kinds of things. Now, let me give you one example. Um, when this started to make sense to me, I told you I was traveling a whole lot. And on, on one particular flight, I was facing a 16-hour flight to uh, India. And when you're on a 16-hour flight, aisle seats become very, very important, right? Can, can you imagine that, right? What you don't want, what you dread more than anything else is, is being stuck in the middle. And so I got to the airport early always and made sure I had, So I get on the plane, and I get nice and comfy in my aisle seat, very excited about the fact that I can get up and walk around. And there's this sweet little, little you know, old lady sitting next to me in the middle. And I strike up a conversation with her, and very quickly she's just telling me how worried she is about having to sit in the middle seat because she's got to get up and down a lot to go to the bathroom. And she was really wondering if I might be willing to trade with her. I've already told her I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. You can't say no. And so I muster up as much joy as I can to trade places with this lady for the sake of her on this 16-hour flight, being able to have the freedom to get up and sit down as much as she needs to. And can I tell you, I thought it was inhumanly, you know, not possible. That woman did not get up once in the entire 16-hour flight. I had to get up and ask her to leave two or three times. She did not. I took out my journal, took my pen. I died today. (laughs) Yes, I would like a cracker, please. I mean, this is what it's like for me to be in a middle seat on an airplane, okay? I have this range of motion that's like right here for 16 hours. She's having a great time over there on the aisle seat. See, it's a picture of, do you see, it's funny, but do you see see what I mean? 
I mean, this is what Paul's calling us to. He's saying, you die so that somebody else can live. You sit in the middle so somebody else can enjoy the aisle seat. But don't miss the other part of what Paul says here. He says, I have to die so that you can live. In other words, when I die in love towards others, that death works life into that other person. And so there's a gospel pattern Paul's calling us to here. He says, Jesus had to die for me to live. His death brought me eternal life. And so now my death, he sends me out to die so that through my death, I might bring resurrection life to other people. This is, I carry around death so that life may work out here. I, the, the death is at work in me, Paul says, so that life might be at work in you. And there's a principle that gets formed here. And it's just this, that the mechanism for the gospel to bear fruit in the lives of others is my death for them. So Jesus said, unless a, a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, what happens? It bears much fruit. And so in order for the seed to become a plant that bears fruit, it first has to die. The life energy of the plant comes through the death of the seed. And so for us, it means the mechanism of the gospel bearing fruit in the lives of others is our death for them. Husbands, the mechanism of gospel fruit in the life of your wife is what? That you die for her. And when you die, when you refuse to make it about you, when you live unselfishly towards her, and when you die, what happens is she comes to life. I wish it were another way. Parents. The mechanism of gospel fruit in the life of your kids is not your superb parenting of them. It's your death for them. It's your constant putting aside. It's your not making your parenting about you. But it's your ability to die to the sake of what other people think of you, to die, here's, to, die to the reality of needing those children to love you. So that you can do good to them. See, is the mechanism of gospel fruit is your death. And for us as a church, the mechanism of the gospel bearing fruit in our city is through our death for the sake of our city. Okay, so that's that's the mechanism. There's the mechanism. There's how it works on a day-to-day basis. I've got to hurry up a little bit. Thirdly, then we need to face the suffering, the obstacles to suffering head on then. Okay, so thirdly, the obstacles. And they're right here. Uh, Chapter 4 is framed by the statement, we do not lose heart. You see that in verse 1 and then down in verse 16 again? We do not lose heart. So what happens in suffering is it can quickly cause you to lose heart. You can become discouraged. You can lose your motivation. Our culture has such an allergy to doing hard things. And the two most common responses to suffering that I find is either self-hatred, in other words, somebody's suffering and they conclude I've done something wrong and God is paying me back, or Blame shifting. I'm I'm done something wrong, and you better believe I'm going to find out whose fault it is, and I'm going to make them pay. What both of those responses have in common is they think life should be free of suffering. In other words, in in neither of those responses is there the idea this might be the good work God's doing in my life. And so, what we have to see is that American values and priorities, in the way of Jesus, the way of love, are competing life strategies. To embrace one necessarily means you forsake the other. And here's what else this means. That we all are, to one degree or another, enculturated. And so what we have to know about ourselves is we are ill-equipped, and our children even more so, for what Paul is saying is normative to the Christian experience. We suffer and we quickly lose heart. 
And by the way, that's why we're such terrible lovers. We suffer and we quickly lose heart, which is why our marriages are falling apart. We suffer and we quickly lose heart. Love is my death for your life. We don't do that. And so, a couple of things. There has to be an adjustment in our thinking. Okay, the first thing, suffering cannot be something we should try to avoid. It has to be the thing we aim our lives towards. Paul says we are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. He, he doesn't say suffering seems to always find us. He says we're always being given over to it. God, in discipling us and shepherding us, is leading us into it every day, all the time, constantly, for the sake of love. But then secondly, we need what Paul is describing here in this chapter, and I call it gospel fortitude. So look at how Paul describes his experience here. In these great verses, in, in verses 8 through 10, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. I just want to walk through this really quick. Literally, crowded, right? Literally, that word afflicted means crowded. It means, you'll, my wife will, will really get a kick out of this. Uh, because, it, you know, you can feel this when you have as many kids as we do, and, and when you do what we do. But it, the, the, the needs and the demands of other people, your children and your neighbors and just the, the desire to love them well, the needs of people and the demands of people just constantly press in on your life. And so your life begins to feel like the scene from Star Wars where they're in the trash compactor. You know, but what Paul says is, but it doesn't crush you. You can live there and you can feel it, but it doesn't crush you. He says, I'm perplexed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. In other words, you don't have to know why things are the way they are. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have it all figured out. You're okay with being confused and it doesn't cause you to despair. He says, we're persecuted. But even in being persecuted, we don't feel abandoned by God. He says, we're struck down, literally thrown down to the ground by life but not destroyed. In other words, you don't, but, but you don't stay down. You recover, you bounce back, you get back up. This is what we need. Paul says, I should expect my Christian experience to be the following. Affliction, confusion, persecution, and struggle. But what the gospel can do is the gospel can come and can give me an ability to deal with this and not lose heart. Paul says, I can live with being misunderstood. I can handle the sadness. I can have nothing and find reason to still rejoice. I, I don't have to have all the answers. I don't need things to be crystal clear. Even in persecution, I can be confident God's not left me. I still know I'm loved. See, that, that's what we need. And so lastly, and at the very end, then how do we get it? How do we get this ability then to face the inevitability of suffering and to not run from it and not lose heart? And what you have to do is go back to chapter 3, verse 18, there at the top. And see the connection between beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into his image. Okay, so what, what Paul's teaching there is that your life gets transformed as you become fascinated with the truth of the gospel. In other words, Jesus' love for you, his cross for you has to become your glory. And beholding the glory of the Lord, then we get transformed. And so the way you get the courage to live a life of dying love towards others is you have to have your heart melted by the love that God has shown you in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you on the cross. And beholding his love, we're transformed into people who can love. So what we need is a glimpse of the glory of Christ. And here's what it does. It gives you a confidence and a hope. It can give you a confidence and a hope that will produce fortitude in your life. Look carefully at 2 Corinthians 4.14. Paul says, We believe, we have confidence, that he who raised the Lord Jesus 
will raise us also with Jesus. And so the courage to die to yourself, to love others, comes from confidently knowing that there's a resurrection waiting for you on the other side of your death. That's what Paul's saying. We're being given over to death constantly. It's at work in us, death, life at work in you. But we don't lose heart because we know that even in our death, God will come to us and he will raise us up. Right? And so here's what this did in Paul's life and what it can do in yours. Paul says, I can put myself at risk. I can hand myself over to to, to a death sentence. I can embrace the suffering love requires of me because I know, because I know that when I put myself out there, God will raise me up with Jesus. You see that? He won't leave me out there. He won't leave me dead in the grave. He can't. I'm tied to Jesus and what goes for him goes for me. And so the issue becomes, do you trust him to be faithful to you? Do you trust him to meet your needs? If you don't, then you'll be taking care of yourself. But if you do, then you'll be free to spend all of your life for the sake of love for other people. But you see, it requires faith. It requires you to live by faith. It requires that you look to things that are unseen and not to things that are seen, 2 Corinthians 4.18. So how do you get faith? How do you get the confidence? And the answer is you have to behold the glory of the gospel. And what do you learn in the gospel? In Jesus, the Father has already proven his commitment to me. He won't leave me out there. He won't leave me in the grave. Look at what he did. Look at what he did. Look at the love he's shown for me in Jesus. If he loved me enough to send Jesus, he'll come get me. But the second thing it gives you is hope. And by hope, I mean just this. If you look at verses 16 and 18. See, losing heart is, and discouragement is forgetting that the, there's a bigger story of, of that God is working out in my life. And what happens, what the gospel can do is it can, it can bring into your life the reality of that even in your pain and your hardship and in suffering, what's happening when you're dying in love for others is you're being renewed. Paul says, outwardly, I might be wasting away. I might be exhausted. My body might be falling apart. But on the inside, my soul is being beautified. And what's more, there is something God is doing. There's a bigger story that is unfolding. There's something beautiful that's coming up out of my suffering. You might not be able to see it right now. It might not yet be here, but it's coming. And so Paul says, what you've got to do is have eyes of faith to see beyond your suffering. That what suffering is doing is suffering is producing a glory that will be so far surpassing and of such worth to you and you will have such joy in it for all eternity that it will make all of the pain of this life look light and momentary in comparison. You believe that? See, if you do, then you can say, I can lose. I can lose now. I can lose the argument now with my spouse. I can lose because one day I will win. I can go without now. Because God sees, and he's going to reward me with an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see what this does? See, it's it's the idea of the gospel and and the confidence that it brings and the hope it produces that gives us the fortitude we need to be able to go out into it and not lose heart, but to persevere that we might bear fruit. And I need to pray. So let's pray that God would come and do that work, and then let's sing this song together this morning that's going to call us to faith and repentance as we consider these things. Father... Thank you for the great work you've done on our behalf in sending the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the sign and testimony of the love that you have for us. 
And so help us as we contemplate these things to glory in the wonder and the beauty of the love that you have for us. That Jesus on a cross is the sign forever of your eternal, undying commitment and love to us as your people. And so help us to to boast and to glory in the love that you have for us until it fills our hearts with such confidence and such host, with such confidence and such hope that we can then turn and pick up our cross and follow after you. That is what we need for you to do. So we pray that by the power of the Spirit you do just that and that you would form in our mouths the words of this song, that this would become the heartbeat of our life, that we would take up our cross and follow after you, that we might bear fruit, that would glorify you, that the gospel might bear fruit in our kids, in our marriages, in our friendships, and in the city we love, that would be to your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Come disaster, scorn, and pain. Oh, does anybody else just cringe? In thy service, pain is pleasure. Um, but but the reality is because there's incredible gain in the gospel. And so as you go, know that you go. If, you're, if, you're, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then he goes sending you with a cross to bear. But the good news is that he sends you not uh, on your own and not in your own strength, but with the promise that he will go with you. Uh, that in every death he will meet you to raise you back up and give you a resurrection. That where you're weak and needy, he will supply you with the strength that you need. You have this treasure in jars of clay, Paul says, to prove that the power is not from yourselves, but from God who provides for you. And that's the promise of the benediction. So don't lose heart at the demands that are before you, because what he promises you is greater than any demand he could put upon your life. So receive the benediction with joy is the very thing you need be faithful to what he calls you to receive these words then may the lord bless you and keep you may the lord make his face to shine upon you be gracious to you may the lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore amen go in his peace